0: This is the Classical Post podcast. Exploring the intersection of classical music, style, and wellness, we dive into meaningful conversations with leading artists from an array of different backgrounds. Based in New York City, Classical Post is a touchpoint for tastemakers. I'm Jonathan Eifert. Let's get into it. The Swedish folk jazz duo, Elise and Toby, just released their award-winning music video, J'étais Vrai, which is the French translation based off of the American classic song from 1938, I'll Be Seeing You. The backstory is quite interesting, however. They discovered a French translation of I'll Be Seeing You from 1945 and found that the French lyrics had been forgotten. A recording of the song was nowhere to be found, even though they found clear evidence that Jeté Verreille was extremely popular when it was first released in the 40s. In order to give the song back to France, they decided to make a new recording of it. The short film was made to reinforce the song's message and to put it in today's context. Apart from winning Best Music Video at Toronto Indie Shorts, the film has also been selected for the Montreal Independent Film Festival and has also been screened at the Berlin Short Film Festival. They also recorded their original song, I'll Be Seeing You, which will be released as a part of their album this fall. Where do you find inspiration to create music? And I'm really thinking about something that is outside of the music world.
1: That is a, I mean, it is a tricky question because actually we don't find inspiration to write music in music. It's very, it's, it's a bit funny actually, but our main inspiration source when it comes to composing, that's actually everyday life. Like my perfect day is like walking around in the forest, then having a nice meal, maybe go to the cinema. And after that, the idea ideas just come. so that's uh, I would say that's the main main source for us. find inspiration to compose,
2: yeah, I, I think a lot of people, uh, when they think about things that should inspire us, they should be grand or magnificent, like that's that's what you get inspiration from. But I actually agree. I would say that a lot of the inspiration we get um, for writing our music is is in the small things rather than the big things. Um, And I mean, sometimes uh, even small things can be very big. Like if you look at these artists from uh, the 17th century, Rembrandt and Vermeer, uh, these French impressionists, they, they often made paintings of very everyday um quotidian things so then the grand and the small can sort of be combined uh in one and the same thing but often i'd say yeah the small things of life that's that's what can give you inspiration in addition to it.
0: I, I love the the idea of um, high and low. I mean, it kind of comes out in in other forms of culture too. Sometimes in fashion or in um, in how you put together, say, a dinner party, perhaps, or, or other things where you have like bits of high culture, but then also mit, mixed with low culture in a way, quote unquote, and and kind of the end result becomes yes, it's it's a mix up, but it, it becomes quite beautiful.
1: Yeah, and I, we really like the holistic way of looking at making things like if we are composing a song for example we of course we write the music but we also like write the lyrics and many musicians do that they write the lyrics on the music but you can also look at it as, as poetry you, you're being a writer actually and also when it comes to like like spreading the music you have to have a cover art that looks in a certain way or you can make a film out of it so that's very inspiring, I would say, that you can have this holistic view of of art and art making.
2: Yeah, and at the same time, Beans, like you mentioned, dinners, it's very nice to have a dinner with, with good friends and just like talk about things, laugh about things, make a joke, and that joke leads to something else. And then you get an idea and that idea becomes something a lot bigger. Uh, so sometimes very uh, small uh quite like very everyday to day, uh, things can be, can become a great idea and, and something very nice can grow out of that.
0: I think that's really exciting to, to think about when you're kind of going about life, it can get uh, quote unquote boring at times, but when you do have those moments where, uh, I don't know, the circumstances are right and the right people are right around you. And that sparks something like you're saying, it's like, boom. It's, it's kind of a magical moment. Yeah. And, and
2: I think life should be a bit boring sometimes Mm -hmm. because I think a a big problem, and that's not just us saying that. I I think a lot of, there's been a lot of research on that as well, that a lot of people these days are just looking on their phones all the time, um, when they're spending time with themselves, so to say, and, 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 um, that just means that you, you don't allow your thoughts to run off anymore. And I think being bored is one of the greatest uh, sources of inspiration because once you're you're bored enough, you'll start thinking about things to to uh, keep yourself um, <laughs> like to keep yourself inspired.
1: And that, that that's actually something we 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 felt that during the pandemic when we couldn't we couldn't stock our schedule with things all the time we couldn't go on tours, we couldn't give concerts, we couldn't meet friends, etc. When we couldn't do all these things, we could just sit at home watching Netflix and like experiencing the pandemic. Then we felt that the ideas came to us. We, we got more inspiration to express ourselves. And that's rather interesting actually, that you need to be bored to be able to create stuff.
0: Otherwise, I, if- I totally agree with that. And um, Toby, going back to what you were just mentioning with the uh, phones and getting off your phones, uh, I did remember reading a, a piece uh, a few years ago that the microseconds um, that we're always like picking up our phones and looking at things is detracting from our creativity. Uh, and I guess before, obviously when we didn't have phones and slash all the apps that are available now, we had all of these like micro moments throughout life, throughout our day that we could think about all kinds of things and that kind of bored quote unquote boredom and, and the ability to mull things over evaporated now. And now it's filled with those micro seconds of looking at your phone. And unfortunately I totally agree. I think it is, um, disrupting creativity then in the long run.
1: Yeah.
0: Definitely. I wanted to uh, ask you guys about fields of study that are outside of music. Uh, so, art, design, architecture, and fashion. Um, from those four, are there any uh, particular ones that really um, pique your inspiration in terms of when you're uh, creating uh, music, creating art?
1: It is very hard to pick one because what we find most interesting and inspiring thing in our creativity is the crossovers when we are watching a film for example we get inspired making music out music out of it or the other way around like we are playing a song and we get inspired by making a film out of it so i would say it's the crossovers it's very hard to just pick one field it's very hard
2: yeah i mean actually something that we have for quite some time been very inspired by is this um, this very uh, like this real renaissance ideal of this uh, Uomo universal, the, the, the universal human being like you had these these artists in italy in the 1400s who basically wanted to be able to do everything they wanted to be great mathematicians they wanted to be great sculptors great painters and of course uh, like i wouldn't for a moment think that we could even <laughs> be close to that. But it is very inspiring as an ideal That because what I think is rather uh, a pity today is that I feel that in our society, many people just they think you should be part of a box. You should remain in that box. And if you step outside of it, that's weird. That's just not... People don't understand that. And I always find that that's just um it, it it removes so much of the possibilities because I don't think we have to be just one box. I mean there's nothing wrong about it, but I don't understand why it should be strange to step out of it and to try something different and to see the sort of the the crossover um effects of what that might lead to. I think that that is very interesting.
1: You shouldn't set up limits for yourself to express yourself in Different fields. I mean, yes, I'm mainly a musician. That 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 isn't who I am. But I can also be, express myself through film or painting. And painting, I, I it maybe won't become that good. But it's still it's still very important to have that vivid way of thinking at uh, art and art making.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I I think that you're very right about that. And then I'm curious, I guess, to take that a a step further, when you're thinking about inspiration, is there a specific influence? I mean, I I know you reference numerous influences right now, but is there, if we kind of really narrow, not just a field of study, but talk about influence specifically, um, can you point to something?
1: There is a Swedish um, artist couple they they lived during like late uh, 19th century beginning of 20th century they were called Karin and Karl Larsson they were both painters but they also created a like a, a home where they had all their children and they were painting together they were cooking and they were like gardening and maybe even building houses i don't know and they had this holistic way of looking at the way of living, and actually they were kind of one of the first influencers in Sweden, like hundred years before the time. But they wrote uh, this man, Karl and the artist, he wrote a book uh, that was called uh, A Home, where he he would describe his home and what were in it, and he described his wife making cake, and he also painted them doing all this everyday stuff. and. Um, that whole like making, of course, your your everyday day life. It shouldn't be a performance art. Uh, it should be your life. But it's it's very it's very inspiring to look at that family hundred years ago, having this holistic view of uh, living their life. Yeah. So I would say their art and their way of living. It's very inspiring for us.
2: Yeah. It's actually funny in Sweden, many people say that Carl Larsson, uh, this book that he published, A Home, uh, it's like the first Ikea catalog. He just showed his entire home with his family in it and and he painted their, day, their life, basically, which at the time was very special. And I mean, I think what we find so inspiring in that couple is that they did everything together um, and they... Um, they made something very beautiful out of their life. Uh, so basically their, their life became entangled with with their their art and vice versa.
0: It's it's an interesting concept um about the or one's life bleeding into professional and then vice versa, professional lead uh, bleeding into personal. Uh, I know I'm very much one like that and I know artists are very much like that. Uh, but it's funny because other people really like to separate, really like to do that hardcore uh, separation where it's like they're, you know, night and day sort of thing. Your professional's over here and there's no crossover to your personal and, and vice versa. So uh I, I get that and it's interesting that this idea of of painting uh and and showcasing your personal life but that it is also influencing your kind of public image which is your professional side um and any thoughts on that this kind of um artist' life of of those worlds bleeding i mean i i definitely think it's fluent um but i also have to like i agree
2: with uh, with you elise that that it's it is very important to me as well to have something very um like, I like the idea of separating work and, and private life. But at the same time, I also like it when people open up. So you have to find some kind of balance there, because if, if you, um, if you separate the two things completely, then, then it feels like we're all living our lives separate from one another. Uh, like I, I sometimes can wonder when, when you look out of the window in a big city. And you see, especially in the evening, you see all these uh, building blocks with houses. And you see all these apartments lit up. And you just very uh, concretely see thousands of lives that you have no connection to whatsoever. And you wonder, what are these people doing? They are living there in their small apartments. But so as soon as you open up and, and sort of share uh, a part of your own box with, <laughs>
0: with another box, then, then that might lead to something very interesting. Have you found that, um, in your experience, this happens more naturally in person or have you had a lot of success digitally? And I guess what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I guess, uh, getting people to open up and, and it's, it's seeing, uh, you know, their, their lives in the, in a fuller sense. Uh, Have has that been more possible digitally? You know, on social media, for example, or um, do you kind of explore that more of like just meeting people in person?
1: For us, it's more about the personal meetings. I think our genre, like the folk jazz genre, is more suited for, for example, small stages um, where we can have a real intimate uh, connection to the audience, and of course we can connect to people digitally as well but i think the way we play music and our genre is more suited for the face-to-face sessions
2: yeah i I definitely agree um we've also done quite some basking on the streets which is one of the most one of the purest ways of of um presenting music to an audience because and it's very democratic too because people basically decide if they want to listen. Uh, they decide if, and in that case, how much they would like to contribute to, uh, say, a ticket, even though you don't have a ticket. Uh, so it's a very uh, dynamic way of meeting an audience. Um, so being on the streets playing music during a, a nice summer, summer's evening or being on a very small stage like, the audience can be 20 people. It doesn't really matter if these 20 people are very much moved by that particular gig on that particular evening. Then to me, and I think to you as well, that that means a lot more than, like, having a, f- a couple of hundred very anonymous listeners who we ha- have no connection to.
1: Yeah, because when you when you enter a room, like, in real life, you can... Sometimes you can feel like, "Oh, here's someone they are all they have just been arguing or they are in love, you can like feel the atmosphere like almost feel it sometimes, and when playing music, the best thing for having the ability to play music is to like respond on those feelings in the in the atmosphere, so that's why we really like busking, for example, or standing on intimate stages because then we can like almost Hear the people lo- looking at and li- listening to us. We can hear their breathe almost, and their like feel their <laughs> sweat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not about that, but I mean, it's uh, like can really the music becomes more uh, real and uh, energetic when it can respond mm-hmm. on feelings that you feel like here, here mm-hmm. and now.
0: I get it. Yeah, it's very palpable and it is very much, yes, that kind of up close energy, uh, especially for artists, you feed off of that and and, and that almost shapes then the the output, you know, shapes how you produce the music in a way. Describe a routine you have in place that helps you live a healthier life.
1: I would say that that is the balance, actually balance between everything. A couple of years ago, we made a documentary film about stress. And then we uh, interviewed a psychologist and he was talking about balance. Like that's the, like the main key for everything. Like if you want to have a stress free life or at least not that much stress in your life and like feel ha- feeling happy you should have a balance between being active and being more passive have balance between having fun and be bored and uh, that's really something we try to hold on to like the balance and it's it's not that easy all the time but after doing that making that film together we really learn something out of it
2: yeah, and I mean, it, it, maybe it, it, it can sound a bit like a cliche because I think everyone says that. Like, yeah, I want to have a balance in life. But um, when we made this film, we were also quite inspired by uh, something one of my teachers said when I was still at secondary school. Uh, we had this this uh, this lecture about ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And and he basically, he had this saying or this motto that um, when a Roman saw a tree on a meadow, he would just look for an axe, chop it down, build a bridge of the wood, and then um, basically think about how he could let his troops march in the most efficient way across that bridge. And when a Greek saw that same tree, he um, would slide down against it and pull a straw of grass, put it in his mouth, and start reflecting about life instead. And I think that's a very nice um, contrast, or a very nice um, like uh, description of two different ways of life. And we're trying to find a balance between these two. Because, um, obviously, these, these these people stand for something. So the Roman, you might say, is a person who works all the time, works very hard, is very efficient, has a very efficient life, plans everything into the tiniest detail, whereas the Greek just takes things things as they come and and basically is a bit meditative about everything going on. And and if you listen to these two, you might be um you may be, you might be tempted to just say, Okay, of course, I want to be the Greek. Um but I, I don't think it's that easy. Like if you, if you sit down against that tree and just think about life all the time, then you might wonder if you're actually living. Whereas if you are constantly working and constantly in this rat race, then perhaps you don't realize that you are living. So that is why we, that we find that very inspiring. And, and that's something that was central to this film that we made, and I, I'd say it's still very central in our lives. I mean, I, I wouldn't say we we honor it all the time. We forget it constantly, unfortunately, as we all do.
1: Yeah, but that metaphor had, has at least helped us to like sometimes stop and okay, what are we doing now? We've been like, for example, when we've been like working on a album f- for a while and just focusing on that and how to promote it, and blah blah blah. Then we can just stop and look at each other and tell each other, okay, now for for a while we have to stop being Romans. We should focus on on being like Greeks for a while and have the balance between them both because otherwise we can't create things. We will just be.
0: Yeah. That is really profound. I I love that thinking. I, I never actually heard it articulated in that way before um active passive as well as this idea of greek and roman uh that's really cool i i need to do some more thinking about that yeah that's really valuable uh energy what energizes you um i I mean perhaps it, it comes right out of that um discussion but uh is there anything you can point to specifically um that gives you energy
1: yeah but as like you said it's Actually, the, the the thing we were talking about now, for example, when we've been on summer vacation for a couple of weeks, we've been just doing nothing, like drinking wine, taking a swim every day, and yeah, having a nice time. That's wonderful, but after some weeks, it's it's not going to become boring. But I have a feeling then that I'm mm, I don't get stimulated enough. So then it's time to, like, become more active. And I I would say that, like, transition gives us a lot of energy to, like, be very passive, do nothing, and change that kind of living to, like, create things. Definitely. That's very inspiring and gives us energy.
2: And and sometimes um, it's not very, it's like, it's not black and white. Sometimes these two... Uh, they, they sort of occur simultaneously. Uh, I remember like we, we really weren't the only ones that I think there are a lot of people during the pandemic who got this idea to, um, buy an old van and rebuild it into a camper van, which we also did like hundreds of people did it. Um, <laughs> but still that was very nice because, um, the pandemic sort of all made us all feel like, what are, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, ba- there you have it, the, the boredom boredom aspect again. Uh, basically, we, we all got bored, so we had to do something. And um, we started building, well, we bought this small van and we uh, rebuilt it. We made a small construction, so it became a camper van. And then we drove to uh, Corsica, an, an island just south of France in the Mediterranean all the way from Sweden with that car. So that was a nice way of combining these two because it it, it we really had to sort of st- get going and, and and do something, like challenge ourselves. And then it ended up we ended up on this beautiful island in the Mediterranean. Uh, our, like that was just a nice adventure that came
0: out of that. How fabulous! I, I, I mean, what a trip! I to drive from Sweden to Corsica in it is bad. I mean, that that's amazing. Did you guys do this like in the height of lockdown or in one of the lockdowns? Is that kind of when it all went down or or what?
1: Yeah, we did it. Uh, when, when was it? Like winter? It
0: was January wasn't
1: January it? January twenty twenty one. So uh, like yeah. One year ago, so kind of the the second lockdown, we did it.
0: Oh, yeah, second lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so not the initial kind of thing, yeah, but later on. No, That's cool. What a great idea.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we got there. Yeah, it it was really nice, and we'll do it again this summer. So (laughs) maybe not all the way to Corsica, but uh, at least to Paris.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that would be nice.
0: (laughs) Is there a ferry that takes you across then um, from uh, whatever that little body of war, I guess, well, the Mediterranean, not little body of war, but the Mediterranean from mainland, (laughs) mainland France, I guess, to Corsica.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go to like the area around Saint-Tropez and Nice. Uh, You take a boat from there to Corsica and it's like eight hours.
2: There are several ones, like several towns in the south of France. So you can even go from Italy. You can, of course, go to Italy as well. Actually, we have planned to do that. Uh, that summer, but then at that time, things were so messy with all the different borders in Europe. So we thought it was just easier to remain in France because if we had to go to Italy, then we had to show all these negative test results and all of that. So we just thought we'll do it some other time.
0: Yeah. Wow. I, what a what a cool, though, idea. I, I definitely have thought about Corsica in the past of like, that would be a really cool trip, specifically that island. Um, in fact, I think on my bookshelf over there, I, um, behind uh, the camera, I actually have a, a book on Corsica, I believe. Um, okay. So yeah, it's, it's been on my radar. Yeah, but I, I, I've never been. <laughs> what is one specific product you highly recommend? And again, I'm thinking really broadly, skincare, food, tech gadget, wine, you name it.
1: I mean, we love food and good wine, but it's, it's hard to pick just one product. But, uh, well, what to say? I, I, In general, tulips from Amsterdam, that's maybe not a product, but it's yeah, kind of a product. It, it is a private product in the Netherlands. It's, so they are beautiful. It makes you happy.
2: They definitely do.
1: And they're really nice to have on the table while drinking
0: good wine and eating good food.
2: <laughs> and I like my pasta machine.
0: Wow, like a a proper thing where you can make homemade pasta (laughs) Definitely (laughs) Is there a specific uh, I guess, do those machines crank out any kind of pasta, like you can have all these different settings to make I don't know, Uh, well I mean penne and spaghetti Yeah, it's
1: fettuccine, spaghetti that's like the regular shapes you can have, but you can also, I mean you can I think you can like buy tools that Creates this very strange looking, funny pasta.
2: I yeah, know. I, I mean, mine is very basic. So I think basically you have this flat pasta, which you could you could make lasagna out of it, and then you have either like tagliatelle or spaghetti. That's basically what you can make out of it.
1: I mean, less is more. So you don't need more than spaghetti and fettuccine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also uh, from a carb perspective, that's enough carbs right there. Right. (laughs) But it sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I love pasta. So I don't care about those carbs. They're they're welcome. (laughs) I I love it. I've been trying something um, new of this, um, Pasta made from quinoa and pasta made from, oh, there's another sort of thing. But in other words, it's not like wheat-based. It's like something else. And, uh, oh, I forget what I had. It It was something else, some other kind of ingredient, but it was some sort of pasta. But it wasn't as good as the main stuff. Like, you just need to, <laughs> the, the, the regular pasta, and that's still better, I think, tasting. Hey, everyone. Just a quick moment to pause this interview to recommend a product I've been using for the past couple of years and really love and that is CBD oil from the Colorado-based company NED. Their CBD has been really helpful to make me feel relaxed and get me in that de-stress zone, especially during the pandemic. It's a practice I want to keep doing daily, even as we all get back to normal. I use their Daily Blend oil and have a monthly subscription, so it's easy to be consistent. As a listener of the Classical Post podcast, you receive 15% off either a subscription like me or just a one-time purchase. Use the code CLASSICALPOST at checkout by tapping the link in this podcast show notes or head to helloned.com. I know later on here in the podcast, we're going to talk about shooting a film in Paris. So what restaurant uh, do you love eating at there?
1: Oh, there are several, of course, but if you like, uh, if we we're first talking about like starting the day, having a nice breakfast place, there is a amazing place at uh, Montmartre, uh, this like hill in Paris, uh, where there is a really, really good place. What is it called? It's uh, cou- le cou- 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 yeah Le Kukulikou, cou- 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 like uh, what's that in English?
2: Well, it basically means yeah. <laughs> And.
1: It's such such a charming place because it's like this nice terrace beneath a tree. And there are just one waitress and she's like running around serving all like 30 customers at the same time. And uh, there are locals there and you can have this very nice croissants and brioche bread and have this nice cup of coffee or tea. And it's just,
2: it's, it's just, wonderful. It's wonderful.
1: Like food wise and atmosphere wise. It's wonderful.
2: Yeah. And you can see that the owner of the place, she knows everyone, uh, in that, in that neighborhood. It's so beautiful to see that. And you just like, you sit there as a tourist and you just, you wish you could be part of that. <laughs> <laughs> but then I it love it. Dinner,
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I just said, I, I love that. I, but, but what about dinner? <laughs>
1: yeah dinner i there are several places there as well, but I remember one of our first times in uh, in uh, in Paris we went to this place called le quartier uh it's near Montmartre it's oh is it in Montmartre i don't know oh, it's quite it's
2: quite close it's
1: this old nineteenth uh, old century restaurants with like you know mirrors everywhere and this like big hall and like golden details here and there and it's just very nice to have this uh, typical bistro, French bistro food and really charming.
2: It's very romantic, definitely.
1: And very genuine. So if you go there, you should go to the quartier to have dinner.
0: I love it. I've, I, I have eaten, um, a few, uh, dinners or lunches, uh, or both in Mamaltra, but I haven't, or I don't remember the names. <laughs> That's the funny thing because, uh, I've been to Paris two times now. Uh, and yeah, I, I never remember the name specifically, but uh, I really love the food though. I, I will say it's in the atmosphere. I, I know what you're saying. There's no um, um, uh, substitute for that kind of French atmosphere. It's so unique uh, that they, and they have a, very much a, a corner on the market. I feel when it comes to dining atmosphere, as well as the quality of food. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking about
1: holistic, like atmosphere, food, wine.
0: Yeah, and
2: the French have this beautiful phrase for that "joie de vivre," like enjoying life. And enjoying life in English doesn't really cover what it covers in French. It's just it's their like it's a real their national motto, and and yeah, it's um,
1: it's kind of our motto as well.
2: Yeah, sometimes it is. <laughs> I love
0: that cops don't overtake. <laughs> like, yes, everything. exactly. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you bring this up though, because I I've been thinking a lot about this concept of the pursuit of pleasure and it, I've, I've heard this, um, recently from, it's actually a brand in LA called Flamingo Estate and they're, they're really doing some cool stuff and they have this kind of farm to table, um, vision of sourcing, um, ingredients and products and, um, you know, stuff for the home, the kitchen, uh, food, et cetera. And, and they have this kind of beautiful magazine that they, um, send out kind of quarterly and they have some sort of like narrative running throughout their brand. Um, and obviously they're selling this stuff, but it's this idea of the pursuit of pleasure and, and kind of taking nourishment from the earth and from really wholesome experiences and, and products and food, et cetera. And I really love that. And kind of tapping into exactly what you were just talking about, the French idea and the joie de vivre, it, i love that kind of connection. And I think the the American um sentimentality with all of this uh doesn't really align, unfortunately. Like I, I think that there's such um a separation. I think Americans are very much this um work driven and everything has to be optimized, where the the French um ideal, like we we're just talking about, is is Drastically different. It is this um, pursuing pleasure for pleasure's sake, and and sitting there in Mamancha having a fabulous a uh, bottle of wine with the best food and the best atmosphere and the best people, uh, and I, that's that's very special. And and I wish, or I, I should say, I'm trying to as much as I can incorporate more of those elements into my own life, um, even though it's very difficult in, in the U.S. where you're kind of bombarded to optimize rather than pursue pleasure. Yeah. Anyway, just my take on things. (laughs) Tell us about creating your short film... JT verai i hope i'm saying that i'm probably not saying that right um which is in english i'll be seeing you i I'll, i should just say ha, tell us about the short film i'll be seeing you uh i loved watching it thank you for sending that um early access it's just fantastic it's so beautifully shot um the the Music itself is obviously gorgeous, so your performance is very, very great. But the the uh, visuals and and the way you were able to put the film together uh, not only brings the the artistry to life, but it it puts you in that kind of different zone mentally, and I and I just love it. So, um, why don't you you know explain why did you uh, set out to create this? Yeah, where should I start? I mean, I guess it all
2: started with. Um... In the summer of 2020, uh, we were supposed to have a small tour in Paris and have a few concerts there. Everything had been planned and then obviously uh, it all had to be canceled because of the pandemic. Then instead of going to France, we tried to bring France to Sweden, to the island of Gotland where we were staying that summer. So we had a few concerts on Gotland. And basically most of these concerts had uh, a bit of a French touch. So we played a lot of French songs and, you know, a lot of um, French jazz songs originate from an American uh, version, like an an English version uh, before that. And we've both loved the song I'll Be Seeing You for a very long time. And, and, During one of these evenings, uh, during this summer of 2020, I just thought, during our next gig, maybe we can see if there's a French version of I'll Be Seeing You. Because the whole concert would be in French, and I wanted I'll Be Seeing You to be included in in it as well. And then we started looking, but we couldn't really find anything. Uh, I only found this very obscure forum where some person said oh i think i might have heard a french version of this once um and then i i think we just literally translated i'll be seeing you into french and then you get je te verrai and we googled for it and what you actually see is that in 1945 there was this um there was a french translation of the song written by jacques larue one of the great uh Lyric, lyricists in France at the time who worked with Edith Piaf and many other celebrities. And we found that was absolutely interesting because this song, this version, this French version is completely forgotten today. Uh, there is no known recording of it available as far as we know. I mean, we've looked at the National Archives in in France. Uh, we haven't been able to find it. Um, but what I found so interesting uh, incredibly nice was that, Elise, actually, you ordered this piece of sheet music uh, from a French antique shop and you gave it to me on my birthday, just before the gig. So we played the French uh, version of I'll Be Seeing You during this gig.
1: And then, because we loved it so much playing it, it's a nice tune, it's wonderful lyrics. Uh, So we wanted to record it. Uh, So like in... like. What you have to do is to like apply for the rights to to be able to record this song because we didn't write it, of course. Uh, but then we realized that the the lyrics that they didn't exist. Like we we wrote to the to the like published company owning the the lyrics or owning I'll be seeing you, and they told us no. But this song doesn't exist. Châteauvert doesn't exist, and we couldn't understand why because we had like a proof. Like look, this is a Sheath Music printed in 1945. It's so strange, but probably when the world became digital, Kötevere disappeared. So we had to like register the song again, and it took like a year. And we were so like worried, oh, are we about, can can we really do this? Think about if they don't give us access to this. Um, but then we got the approval to record the, the lyrics in French. And uh, then we really we realized that this song is so important because it's it's been forgotten for a long time. The message is important.
2: Yeah, because actually the, the message that, that is something we found out once we started digging into the history of this song. Um, I think a lot of people, especially in America, have a special relation to "I'll Be Seeing You" because in the in the '40s you had uh, you had Billie Holiday singing it. Frank Sinatra sang it. Uh, In Britain, you had Vera Lynn. You have these very iconic figures who sang it. And it meant a lot to people during the Second World War. It was like a signal, a a sign of hope to a lot of people. And in 1944, in August 1944, Paris was liberated from uh, Nazi Germany by the Allied troops. And what happened then was people sort of thought this was the first step towards peace. This, this is the first step towards the end of the war. And then this Jacques Larue, I think in this sort of incredible joy about the fact that Paris was now free, he translated, I'll be seeing you, which was played all over, all over the place into French. And uh, it was then played very frequently at the French radio and sang by very famous figures. But what, what I find so funny is that he wrote a very, he wrote a version of his own because the lyrics are quite different, uh, from the English one. Uh, I mean, in, in the English version, they sing about Paris, which I think is the American uh, perception of romance. But in France, Paris is not like the French don't like Paris that much. (laughs) It is the opposite of romance sometimes. So what is so interesting is that uh, Jacques Larue he didn't write about Paris he wrote about the countryside and about a small village uh where you hear the church bell ringing and and it's it's a completely different atmosphere and it's a bit of a pity that that has been lost so it's yeah. it's so nice that we could record this video and and sort yep. of restore it
1: We wanted to record a video uh, just to like reinforce the message of the song So when the song now is We are giving it back to the world. We thought, why not making a film out of it? You just really like reinforce the message. Uh, And that's why we wanted to have the like balance between the countryside and Paris and mix them together in this film to like give both songs, uh, like I'll be seeing you's way of looking at romance and should be way of looking at romance. So that's what it all came up to like this film.
0: Yeah. It, it's a, a really, a, a crazy story and especially that it was lost. So, so if I got this right, you're saying that it's, the, it's the French version specifically, it's not this English version that was recorded by so many people, it's the French version specifically.
2: That version was lost. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll be seeing you is, is a very, obviously a very, uh, known song to this day. But this version that was translated by Jacques Larue in 1945, which we know uh, was played a lot on the radio in France at the time, is completely forgotten. Nobody knows it. Uh, we we don't know of any recording. So we just thought, well, why not record it? And especially, well, obviously, we during the pandemic or as we were approaching what we hope. <laughs> could be the end of the pandemic or the start of the end of the pandemic. We thought that might be, um, a nice gift to people and hopefully it will spread some joy. And obviously, um, there are a lot of things going on in the world right now, um, that also, I think we need hope and, uh, yeah,
1: people are now, as we speak, separated from the ones they love against their will. And our hope is that this film will, will give them hope that they will eventually meet again. They will see each other again. Like I'll be seeing you. So that's what we want to like spread to the world.
0: Yeah it's a really it's it's beautiful i and I love that uh you you just didn't record the French version, but you actually did this video. I think the a short film is is such a, a appropriate uh to do. Uh, tell me a little bit about the filming process. I know you mentioned earlier that um you were somehow filming at at four in the morning at the Eiffel Tower. Uh, I'm curious about that whole experience
1: yeah, that was that was amazing. I never experienced such a wonderful thing before, actually. Because we, in the script, we wrote the script together with the collaboration partners, Rumblewood, the film production company. So we wrote the script together and in the script, it says that we want to have a like night scene under the Eiffel Tower. And yeah, that's that's lovely. But the only problem is it's n- it's never empty around the Eiffel Tower. It's like always people around and taking pictures. And so we thought, okay, how can we solve this and then uh, we realize okay what let's just wake up very early because even if like people that go into nightclubs and being out late they are of course strolling around but we thought that maybe there are like some like three hours during the early early bird hours uh, in in the day that uh, people are still sleeping even the people Drunk people <laughs> went to the club so we woke up very early in order to be alone and we were alone that was amazing like we could like cross the streets without uh, a car inside and we were on one of the bridges and be, like below uh, the Eiffel tower and there was just some birds walking around there and it. It was such a magic uh, moment, and felt like being in a Monet painting. Actually, you know the like with all yeah. the blurry, blurry cl- colors, and so that was really
2: an experience. It was beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah. How oh, cool? I think, yeah, I mean, it's such a unique experience. Yeah, because uh, I don't think many people are, are walking over to the Eiffel Tower at four in the morning. So that that's amazing. Um, yeah. And in terms of, did you have to like uh, figure out the whole? Uh, or I, I don't even know what the production crew looked like. Um, was it just minimally shot? I mean, did you just have one, uh, a few cameras or or did you have like hair and makeup too, or or how was this production like?
1: It was uh, rather minimalistic it was the two of us and then our collaboration partners rumble with them there too. So like four people and they were doing makeup, uh, the makeup thing as well. Uh, and then it was uh, Sasha, who may, was a photographer, and Jacqueline, she's a director. So he was like uh, switching between uh, flying the drone and having this.
2: Uh... Not in Paris, though. No, Not in Paris. In Paris, because... you're not allowed to fly any drones.
1: <laughs> yeah, we wanted that initially, but uh, we we had to like uh, put it out of the script. But uh, we uh, did it on the on the countryside, where uh, we rented an old car and we. Re- took it on the like old roads. And then we had this drone flying over the car and it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's really nice that we got those pictures. So, I mean, so the crew was just four people, but we managed to make a really, really good and big production out of it. So you don't need, if you, if you, if you have the possibility to collaborate with skilled and professional people, you, you don't need that many people, actually. It's, it can be very efficient and good anyway.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I, I hear you. I, I'm curious, the connection to Mahler's third symphony of I'll Be Seeing You. I know um, leading up to the recording this, you were mentioning that there's this connection. I know you sent me a link and I was listening, but um, can you point out specifically, was it a theme that there's this um, or a motif or something? Is that, I, I'm curious, our listeners would probably really like to, um, to know that.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that is very interesting because
0: again, what I'll be seeing you is this very
2: famous song and Mahler obviously is a very famous composer but I don't think a lot of people know that that this theme is just, it, it, to me, it's pretty obvious that it, it, it comes from his symphony. Uh, so in his third symphony, the sixth and last movement, um, you can, after a while, after this beautiful introduction, you can very clearly hear uh, the main theme of I'll Be Seeing You. And um, what I find interesting is that Mahler, which was quite uncommon, um, he, he basically he wrote some kind of program to accompany every, um, every movement of his symphony in order to give the listener some kind of idea on how to interpret the music. So these six movements of his third symphony each have their own motto if you will I think one of them um, is called what the trees tell me and another one is called what, what what humans tell me and the very last movement in which you can hear the theme of I'll be seeing you is called what love tells me and I find that so interesting because I think I'll be seeing you is without doubt uh, one of the most famous love songs we have and I think Sammy Fain when he wrote the song in 1938, uh, he might have known about that. And he might have known about Mahler's, um, thoughts about that particular movement, that that should express strong love and also strong longing for your loved ones.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fascinating connection. I'm so glad you, you, um, told me about it because I, I didn't realize, um, that I, and I don't think many people would have made that connection. So that that's a really interesting connection. Um, One more question here before we end, and that is success Um, at large, um, uh, or you can take it specifically, but what does success mean to you as artists and as people?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, we would be lying if we would say that we don't care about like the streams and reaching out to many people. Of course, we want many people to watch this important movie because the message is important, especially during these times. But when you talk, when talking about success, I think it's, or I know for us, it's more important to really touch people to like, if, if a random person, like a person that I don't, don't know would wrote write to me, or call me, and tell me that uh, I woke up this morning and I felt very sad, and I almost uh, thought of not living anymore if uh, if uh, someone would tell tell me that and then tell me in the same uh, in the same sentence that after watching your film and hearing your 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 song, it felt me it, I felt better, and i i Made me feel happy again that that's that's more important for us. and then, like having a lot of people watching the film or hearing the song. So oh. if twenty if just twenty people hear the song, watch the film and get very touched, that's more important. It's yeah, it's not empty phrases. It's actually that's that's a fact
2: i I, I agree. and and that's a bit of a a pity about, I mean, there is so much focus on number of listeners num- numbers of number of views these days so as soon as as you go into spotify or any other streaming service you will see well this artist has a couple of listeners uh, well if if and this artist has 1 million well then these other ones are probably not any good um but that's such a a narrow way of looking at it because there are so many different audiences. There are so many different interests and so many different kinds of music. And I think the core business of music is moving people, is touching them, is reaching out to their emotions. Um, we had this, this friend of ours recently who, who reached out to us and said that he has this for 40 years, he has spent time with a family in, in, in France and he used to spend his summers there. He's from Ireland, and he used to travel there during the summers. Um, And he always kept in touch with his family. And now the mother of this family, uh, she has grown quite old. She lives in an elderly home just outside of Paris. I think she's in her 80s or 90s. And he said that he shared some of our music with her. We don't know this woman, um, but he shared our music with her. She's blind. She is not completely well. But she uh I mean she uh she is uh bright in the head and all of that. So but she listened to our music and she told our friend that this really made her day. And that is such a fantastic experience to hear about one lady in Paris, uh, or just outside of Paris listening to our music. We don't know her. And somehow she got moved. That that is the goal, to reach out to people and to To be able to inspire them, and in our turn be inspired by them, that that is, I think, success to us.
0: Thanks for listening to the Classical Post podcast. Explore more insightful content on our website at classicalpost.com, where we share original perspectives, listening guides to new recordings, and conversations with the leading artists. Stay abreast of classical music, style, and wellness by signing up for our monthly briefing delivered directly to your inbox. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Eifert. Thanks for listening.